This is the Visible Hand. My name is Jordi Blanes Vidal. My guest today is Pauline Grosjean, who is a professor in the School of Economics at the University of New South Wales. Today we're going to talk about her paper, Heroes and Villains, the Effects of Combat Heroism on Autocratic Values and Nazi Collaboration in France, which is joined with Julia Cagé, Ananda Gorret, and Saumitra Ja. The paper was published in the American Economic Review in 2023. Pauline, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. So, Pauline, this paper has an initial, a narrow question, uh, which is what happened in France in 1940 and how this relates to military involvement in the previous World War. And a wider point that you are trying to make, uh, which is that, that heroes sometimes can use their status to lead other people into decisions that might be considered unthinkable. I want to start first with a discussion on the narrower uh, historical episode and how you identify this effect. Can you tell us, you know, broadly speaking, what happened in France in 1940? Okay, so as you may know, um, after nine months of nothing happening much on the Western Front, Germany invaded France and in And it's a debacle for the French army, right? So in about eight weeks, the French army is completely beaten up and some are fleeing to the UK through Dunkirk. I mean, it's not only the French army that's beaten up, all the allied forces on the Western Front are completely destroyed and beaten up. And the French high command is struggling to find a solution for this. And the government is in disarray. And they have this great idea to call upon a man who was this heroic soldier from the First World War. And that we're going to talk a lot more about later. Um, so invite him, they invite him to join the government, which he um, agrees to. And their hope is that he's going to turn things around on the front. But instead, he just advocates for an armistice, signs an armistice with Germany. Um, and in the middle of all this going on, the French parliament commits suicide. So what I mean by that is that the French parliament voluntarily ended its sovereignty by voting full power to this heroic war uh, marshal. So it's a very particular, you know, it's a very interesting event because it it, it is an historical event where a democratic government chooses to basically kill itself and votes full power to someone who will become a dictator. And I'm sure we'll have some chance to talk more about the policies that this government put in place. So this, uh, as you said, was uh, Philippe Pétain. He became, mm -hmm. as you said, like an authoritarian dictator of France, but not all of France, correct? It's, he was controlling only like some part of France. What did he do while ruling this Uh, this part of France from from what was called the VZ government. So actually, it's not. So it's a bit of a complicated situation. But France is divided in two zones. One is the so-called free zone, where the Vichy administration, headed by Philippe Pétain, has complete power, and the north zone. Uh, so consisting on the north of France and the Atlantic coast is the so-called occupied zone by Germany. But it's very important to understand that Germany would not have been able to occupy or rule this zone without the help of French authorities, and in particular, the help of the French police. So it is the French police that is administrating law and order, even in the north of France, under the order of the Vichy government. So it, it is really the system that allowed Germany to occupy France with a minimal number of soldiers. The French really did it themselves. And so even though there is this division, you still have some authority, in particular on the police and the judicial system of Vichy over the whole of France. So one possible interpretation of this is that your country has just been defeated in war. It is being occupied. Let's try to make the best out of a bad situation that we find ourselves in. But apparently the willingness of this Vichy government and of Philippe Ten to, you know, collaborate and do things like uh, deport uh, Jewish citizens was well beyond the call of duty, if you want to uh, say it that way. Yes. He was going well ahead of what the Nazis were requiring of, of him and of his government. That's right. So, I mean, we can talk about anti-Semitism and then talk about a few other things that the government did, that the Vichy government did. So on anti-Semitism, 
you know, this is still a very hotly debated point, but there is evidence that, so first of all, one of the first thing that the government does is to vote some laws on the statutes of the Jews and forbid Jews to be working in the administration and et cetera. And this is well before Germany asked anything of them. Uh, there is another evidence as well that it is the French government that insisted on departing Jewish children. And so <laughs> initially in the first transportation, um, the, the Germans didn't necessarily you know, insist on having the children. And it is the French government that insisted on departing the children. Moreover, more generally, you know, beyond the point of antisemitism, there was a lot of internal policies that were set in place by the Vichy government to crack down on internal political enemies, the communists, the Freemasons, some people who did not align with the system, firing a large portion of the teachers, for example, who were suspected of being too left-wing and indoctrinating the French nation into being, you know, socialists. Um, and this really Hitler couldn't care less about. You know, there is a large fraction of the policies that the Vichy government did that had to do with internal matters, and Germany didn't care at all. You were talking, uh, referring earlier to the fact that Philippe Pétain was a hero from the previous World War. Uh, can you tell us his story? What made him a hero? Uh, why did he have his status going into the Second World War? Okay, so um, what happened in the in at the start of um, World War One is that um, Pétain is relatively unknown officer. So he's graduated from Saint Cyr, which is the military academy in France, but he's you know didn't have a very good rank, and his career is nothing impressive. At the start of the war, he's a colonel. He's fifty eight years old, and he's about to retire with a mediocre political career. However, as you know, you may know, I think you're interviewing me from the UK. So the UK history is very linked to that of France at the start of World War I. The, the Germans are making very rapid advances at the start of World War I. And again, you know, the French are going back, the British Expeditionary Forces is going back. And so the military situation is very bad for France at the start of World War I. And high command reacts by just firing a whole lot of generals who were in charge of the battles. And so at the end of the, you know, even very early into like the start of the winter in 1914, there is not so many generals left, but Pétain is one of them. And again, going forward in 1916 at the Battle of Verdun, which was an un anticipated attack of German on the Western Front that is launched on the 21st of February 1916, things are not going well for France. It's a, again a disaster. The German pierced the, the front. High command reacts again by firing its generals. So you have one general a day that is fired because things are going so bad. And Pétain is really, as we write in the paper, the last, one of the last guys left. And he happens to be available at the time when other generals are engaged in different sectors of the front. And so he's called to head the Battle of Verdun that will become the most significant battle of World War I for France. And he will turn that battle around. This is quite important for what you're going to tell us uh, here. He is put in command at the end of February 1916, correct? That's right. And then mm -hmm. he lasts in command actually barely two months. In early May, they, you know, the, the political leadership gets tired of him and he's moved somewhere else. And then the battle continues without him. That's right. So the battle starts on the 21st of February. It's a disaster. One general a day is fired. From, high com from command of the battle. Pétain is the only one left and he's he's available. And as we, you know, we tell that little story often is that he he so doesn't anticipate his nomination that he's not even close to the front. He's in a hotel in Gare du Nord in Paris, close to, you know, where you take the train to come do your start. Um, he's in a hotel in Gare du Nord with his mistress. And this is where he needs to be summoned to take command at zero hour on that very night. And then he puts in place a very different system from previous generals. So I told you that his political career was mediocre. And one of the reasons for this is that he was in disagreement with the rest of high command about how the war should be led. And in particular, the importance of the defense versus the offense. So the high command is very much pro-offensive and he's pro-defensive. And he's got a few fans in that policy, by the way, we can come back to this, is that de Gaulle is actually a big fan of Pétain at the time. And de Gaulle himself, an officer, 
asks to serve in the in Pétain's unit because he he likes the same kind of policies. So anyway, so coming back to Verdun, he turns the battle around. He managed to stop the German advance. And, you know, the battle continues and rages on in terrible circumstances. And maybe we can come back to the circumstances that really made Verdun so important for the psyche of the French soldiers and the psyche of the nation in general. And so what happens is that high command is a bit tickled by his not only his popularity, because the press is lionizing him as the hero of Verdun, but also with his defensive stance. High command again wants more attack. And so they kind of want to get rid of him, but it's very difficult to get rid of him because he's very popular. But what happens is that on the 1st of May, some other general retires and Pétain is promoted away from direct command of the battle. And the battle continues until December of 1916. I presume that this is important because he was not just uh, there for a lucky general, but he was a smart general, or at least a general that had the right type of doctrine that the circumstances um, of this specific important battle seem to require at the time, correct? That's right. Although, to be perfectly honest, because I'm not a military history expert, it is, I'm not denying the fact that, you know, it is widely documented that his doctrine was different. There is also, you know, I think it would be interesting to see to what extent it's also part of the myth that was created around him. But we do measure in the paper, some differences in his what we what we could call leadership style. Um, so I think he's more defensive, and notoriously, the generals who succeed him in leadership of the Battle at Verdun are known for not even looking at casualty lists because they such is the care that they gave to their soldiers, right? And so one of the successor in Verdun is actually nicknamed as the butcher, right? Mm -hmm. So so it is very clear that his successors are more offensive and care less for human lives. And as a, as a measure of this, we measure in the paper, first of all, whether troops noticed who was in charge and they do notice, right? So we do notice that the troops that served under his leadership refer to him a lot more in the documents that are written up after the war to account for their movement of troops, et cetera. We also see that, he shares the credit. So they're, you know, the, the, the regiments that serve under him at Verdun, as opposed to under the other generals that succeed him, end up with a, a few more medals, right? So there is this idea that, and there is a lot of historical accounts that he's there visiting the front lines, visiting the trenches, reviewing the soldiers, pinning the decorations himself. And, and as we argue in the paper, that creates a bond between him and the soldiers. So here... The title of the paper has the word heroes twice in it, but mm -hmm. the notion, I presume, is not that Philippe Pétain himself was a hero, right? Because he, there, is, there are no accounts necessarily of a personal bravery on his part. He was not at the front of a wave of attack or anything like this. He was, you know, leading from, from the back in charge of strategy and maybe taking care of the soldiers spinning medals, but... There is no notion that at least in this battle, mm -hmm. his uh, personal safety was at stake. Yes. So two things I want to say here. First of all, I do think that compared to other generals, as I said, like he would review the troops and he was closer to the troops. I'm not saying that he took great risk for his personal life, but there is some evidence that he he was closer to the troop in that way. Second of all, I think, and, and we'll come back to the reason why heroism is twice in the title, because we'll have to talk about the veterans themselves. But I think we why this paper is interesting to us is that I think there is no question that Pétain was made a national hero for France. And there is a lot of myth that was created around it and et cetera. But I think, I, I think his, his status was not so much having to do with exactly the risk that he took, but just the fact that he, he stopped the German advance. He saved France. And I think all historians agree that Germany had a chance to win the war before Verdun, but not after. And I think we also want to perhaps think about more general definitions of heroism, right? When someone says, oh, this person is my hero, they do not necessarily mean this person is taking great risks to save my life, right? So I think this is also something that I think people choose their heroes and this is related to some personal characteristics, but there is a lot more than that. So 
France wins the First World War. They don't lose. Well, they win it together with some allies and everything. Uh, what happens to Pétain afterwards? So Pétain is immensely popular because of the status that he is the one that saved France at Verdun. Also, what I'm going to say is that maybe we'll get a chance to talk more about why Verdun is so important and we're talking about Verdun and not other battles. But he's hugely popular, but he refuses to have formal political role because he's not a Democrat. So he refuses to have political roles because he doesn't he doesn't want to have a formal role in a democratic government. So he's a very he's actually uh, France's ambassador to Spain under Franco. And so he hangs out with Franco and that's acceptable to him because I think they agree on many different political <laughs> views. And so to give you an idea of his popularity, there is a referendum that's organized by a newspaper in, I think, 1934 <laughs> that says, who would you choose as France's dictator? And he comes first with, you know, flying colors. And he's a, what's interesting is that even though he's openly right-wing and anti-democratic and anti-communist, he's still quite a figure that's revered by the left and the right. You have mentioned a few times that it is important to take into account the role of the Verdun battle in the French imagination. Mm -hmm. Why is it so important, other than from the fact that 380,000 French soldiers died and that it was one of the turning points of the war, at least on the Western Front? What other reason does it have to have this special status in the French imagination? Um, so as you said, I think this idea that the yeah, that Germany had very few chances left to win the war after. And so this turning point, it was also the longest continuous battle in history, right? It, it lasted for 10 months. And when you read a soldier's account of the battle, the conditions were horrible. And so all the accounts of the soldiers say that Verdun was very different from the other battles in just how hard the conditions were because of constant artillery bombing and people were you know literally going crazy and just it was very very difficult to live in this environment as you said a lot of people died so it's estimated that you know it, there was one death per minute for 10 months in Verdun and because of what Pétain did when he arrived in power he put in place a system of rotation of troops that would make sure that troops were rested. So they were going to the front line and then they were rested for a while. And so you needed troops to replace those troops. And so because of this system of rotation for, for which he was loved by the soldiers because they were getting some rest, but you needed a lot of men. And so in fact, 90% of French municipalities went to Verdun at some point or another. And what we're using in the paper is that we're using the differences between those who went to Verdun under Pétain's leadership and those who went to Verdun after he was removed from direct command. But if you want, the, the imprint of Verdun on the French nation is huge because practically all the veterans went to Verdun and the conditions were just the most shocking and traumatizing of the whole conflict. I'm going to describe uh, your main regression in the paper, if you don't mind. You have already alluded to what is the uh, independent variable. Uh, which is whether the uh, regiment of a municipality serve in Verdun under Pétain. You are studying whether this affects the likelihood of joining extreme right-wing organizations and collaborate with the Nazi invaders, with the Vichy government after 1940, 22 years later, when Pétain mm -hmm. becomes the dictator uh, of France. Obviously, Critical to this is to identify this effect is understanding what makes a soldier more or less likely to serve in Verdun under Pétain. How was this determined? So as we argue in the paper, it's really due to military exigencies and because of the specificities of rotation of regiments in France, we argue that it's really random whether you're going to end up in Verdun in February, March, April, May or June. So what you have to imagine is that the, the German attack on the 21st of February, 1916, but it's not like nothing else is happening, right? So you've got battlefronts in Alsace, you have battlefronts more to the north. And so you have a lot of troops that are already engaged in different battles. So who happens to be in Verdun, first of all, is kind of random, but who happens to be deployed there immediately is also just depends on who was resting at the time. 
And this is unforeseen, right? And then what happens is that because of this rotation system that Pétain puts in place, you need a lot of men. And so this is really the exigencies of the front, whether some troops can be relieved from the Lorraine front or the Alsace front or the Northern front. You know, it depends on what's going on in other sectors of the front. It depends what regiment is engaged where. And in that way, you know, we argue that the very system of rotation is is random. You also have to remember that the French infantry, as opposed to the German infantry, for example, are not specialized units. So, you know, the, the German infantry regiments are specialized and they have a very strong identity as specialized units and regional areas. In France, you have these regional regiments, but they, the French high command is worried about regional identities becoming too strong and is doing anything to reduce the potential for national ident- for regional identities to form. So first of all, they're numbered. They don't have any reference to the region they're from. And there is a willingness to sort of equalize the losses across regiments, right? So if you have a regiment that's somewhere and that's decimated, it's going to be you know, more withdrawn, and then another one is going to be sent in its place. And that's going to depend on who's available at the time. So that's the story, if you want the background. And I think we provide in the paper some excerpts from high command documents that says that the person who was taking this decision was the general in chief and not the commanders in Verdun. So it was the general in chief in Paris who was looking at the whole situation and making the decision, bearing in mind the whole situation of the front and strategic consideration of the conflict because as you know the ally the allies were preparing for the sum offensive in July 1916 and so some troops were you know already allocated to this big offensive so that's the background and then in the paper of course we do the usual thing that people do in applied economics you know looking at the balance of covariates and a wide number of covariates that all show that the municipalities that served at Verdun under Pétain or under another general are comparable in, I don't know how many characteristics we have, 54 or something like this. Uh, and we can't find any difference. And very conveniently for us, because our outcomes are political, there is an election in France in April and May 1914. So just a few months before the outbreak of World War I. So we have the results of these elections at the municipal level, and we can check that the ones that are going to be sent at Verdun under Pétain are politically indistinguishable from the ones that will be sent at Verdun under another general. You have a cross-section of municipalities. The main independent variable, as uh, you have just uh, discussed, is serving in Verdun under Pétain. A critical control is serving in Verdun, even though you have mentioned that that control I mean, has uh, almost takes value one because... Mm-hmm. Almost all the municipalities send soldiers to Verdun at one point or another. Regional or departmental fixed effects, some pretreatment controls. You do the balancing test. Can you describe now what are the dependent variables in this regression and where do they come from? So when I talked about Pétain World War II, I talked a little bit about his policies, but I didn't say the most important thing is that he takes power in July 1914. And in October 1914, he meets Hitler and agrees and advocates for a politics of collaboration with Nazi Germany. And so he advocates for just cooperating with Germany and, you know, favoring the German occupation of France. And that's the camp that France is going to be on now. And again, I want to say that this was not the only option available. Actually, you know, the British had offered a military alliance with France. There was other options on the table. They could have set up a legitimate government in exile. Pétain chooses to collaborate with Germany. And so what we're interested in is to see to what extent people in France followed him into collaboration because of his aura and his what had happened, the loyalty that had formed at Verdun in particular. So we had to find data on collaborators in France during World War II. And when I mean collaborators, I mean people who were part of political parties that were pro-Nazi Germany, so fascist political parties. I also mean paramilitary groups that did Germany's dirty work for it and you know, allowed Germany to occupy France with very few troops. So these are homegrown paramilitary organizations that were beating down on communist resistance and gathering Jews. Uh, So the most infamous one is the Milice. 
And there's also people who are directly working for occupation forces by joining the Gestapo, by joining the SS. And then there's even a group of people who volunteer to go and fight in the Eastern Front for the Wehrmacht. So we're looking at, you know, an array of pro-Nazi fascists and very extreme behavior that consists in volunteering and for the Gestapo or volunteering for the Wehrmacht, essentially, and some economic operators. Just to emphasize what you're saying, if this is like a, an active choice, if I am a police officer in a small village in rural France and, and I continue being a police officer mm -hmm. after the G Germans have taken over in the north or under the VC government, I'm not, I'm not in your dependent variable. Right. It no. has to be something that I have chosen to do. I have gone out of my way to do this type of collaboration. That's right. And so obviously, as you know, France after World War II kind of want to erase its collaborationist past and portray itself as one of the allies and who resisted against Nazi occupation. And so it's very hard to find data on collaborators. Right? I mean, people don't. This is not something that is widely available. And so we had really very little idea about where to find this kind of data. And so did historians and other people. There was a, a trial in the 90s. I remember I was a child and I actually, like I was, a, I don't know how old I was. You know, maybe I should look it up, but I was very young, like a young teenager. And I listened to the trial of this guy on the radio. I was somehow fascinated. So this person is called Maurice Papon and he was accused of being a collaborator. And then he was a prefect in post-World War II France. He had high-ranking occupations in the administration, but there was this drought because he was suspecting of being a collaborator. And one of the pieces of evidence is that Serge Klarsfeld, that you may be familiar with, who's you know the most famous Nazi hunter um, in France, talked about the list of collaborators and said that this person, Maurice Papon, was on the list. And so there was a mention of the, of the list of collaborators in this trial, but that was pretty much it, right? So this list was in fact put together in 1944, 1945 by um, double agents and information agents and some resistance members. And it never saw the light of day. And it consists of 100,000 names of people suspected of collaborations, but to whom nothing happened. So they're not the high-end collaborators that were put on trial or that were executed. But they're not, you know, just the policeman who just did his job, right? And we got in touch with an amateur historian who had written a book for popular press about the thousand collaborators. And we said, oh, you know, you wrote this book about these collaborators and what's your source? And he said, well, actually, when I was working at this, um, at this museum, someone came one day, this little old lady, and she said that she had, this, she had the list of collaborators. And her husband was given this list. Her husband was a resistance member. He was given the list to take care of and probably not come out. And he had died. And she was bringing it to this Museum of the Resistance in Bordeaux to have it taken care of. And this person who was working there took pictures of the list before he gave it to the higher-ups. And this is how, you know, we got into knowing when this, where this list was. And now it's in the archives in Bordeaux and you can consult it. But we were the one, the first ones to digitize this list. So from the rule list, we just, you know, put Excel files and coded all the location and the names of all these collaborators. And this is the main data that we're using. So the idea here is that I may have uh, served in this uh, important battle under this heroic general, and then I go back uh, to my uh, municipality, to my town or village, and then that person that uh, is my hero that I uh, adore because he saved my life through the system of rotations, a lot of things, mm -hmm. uh, starts taking an increasingly autocratic journey, and I follow him in that Autocratic journey said that 22 years later, I am more likely to appear on that list. That's what your regression is trying to establish empirically. So we do a bit more than that. What you're saying, this sort of loyalty mechanism that I'm loyal to this person and I will do whatever he says is the right thing to do. 
And I will go even as far as volunteering to go and serve in the Wehrmacht on the Eastern Front in 1943. Very few came back, by the way. This is a really extreme political, it's suicide, basically, right? So that's definitely part of the story, but we actually think that there is more. And to show this, and what we mean by more is that we we show that the veterans of World War I were also able to convince those around them because they themselves were heroic veterans of Verdun. So we distinguish just the people who served for Pétain in World War I at any point during World War I and the one who served for him at Verdun. And we find a difference between these two types of people. So what we find is that any veteran who served under Pétain at whatever point of World War I is more likely to become a collaborator in World War II and follow him into this politics of collaboration. What we find, though, is that for those who served under him at Verdun, they're also able to convince those around them. So we also observe more people who are not themselves the veterans of 22 years ago, but who may be the nephews, the sons, the friends, and the, the sons are friends of these people. And here, this is why there is the second hero in the title, is that we also think that the veterans themselves, and specifically those who went to Verdun and who are these special veterans because Verdun is so important for the French psyche, and there is all this ceremonies around Verdun, and there is a Rue de Verdun in every town that you go to in France. So these people are special. And they themselves had this heroic aura and are able to convince those around them. So it's a bit more than just a personal loyalty story. It's also how these people are embedded in these networks and have local clout in their local communities and are able to convince others to follow them into the same direction. As you, as we have been mentioning, the regression is at the municipality level. Uh, so yeah. at, least, at least the main regression doesn't distinguish whether the actual collaborator is somebody who personally self in the previous battle, in the previous war or not. And yeah. then you distinguish, et cetera, et cetera. But, but that's, that's the, yeah. um, the, I mean, at least the initial regression. I want to, sure. I want to go back to one thing that you have referred to at, at separate points that I think requires a little bit, a little bit more like a um, investigation, which is, which is the importance of having served in Verdun under Petén. So if I arrive, if I'm a soldier and I arrive uh, in, in June or, or in middle May after Verdun has already moved out, I still know that the success of the battle that I was involved in is to the credit of Petain because he introduced the innovations that are allowing my country uh, to win the battle. Like there is a sentence that you refer to in the paper uh, which is, and pardon my French here, Jaffe Verdun, which mm -hmm. means I serve in Verdun. It doesn't say uh, I serve in Verdun under Petain specifically. Yeah. You know, in fact, he didn't even win the battle in person. He introduced the innovations, very important or credited very strongly. But if I arrive later, why is he less of a hero to me than if I happen to be at the time? Because these soldiers did not necessarily interact personally with him either, right? Like, like the, there were yeah. lots of soldiers there. The livelihood of having actually met him is very small. Sure. So I think there's two things in your question. The first is that you are essentially saying that the whole French population was treated in applied econ terms by Pétain. And that explained more collaboration. And, and that is perhaps a true statement. And we're not saying that it's not, Correct, but we cannot test the statement because we don't observe the whole. You know, we 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 can only compare French municipalities with one another, and so to some extent, I agree with you. And the historiography is also alluding to this: is that we are underestimating the true effect of Pétain on the extent of collaboration in France in World War II because we're only able to compare municipalities with one another. So what we're saying is that for the guys who went to Verdun under his leadership there is something more. And this is this personal connection. And we give a quote in the paper that a reporter, the, the New York Times reporters, for example, uh, in Paris wrote. So he says, 
you know, the man who organized the defenses, strengthened the strong points, mobilized almost every cannon in the French army and stood beside the single supply road, the sacred way, watching with compassion in his icy blue eyes as men strode up to the front and stumbled back a few days later. This man became the greatest of heroes, the champion of France, as Paul Valéry, the poet, was later to hail him. Between Philippe Pétain and the men who fought with him, indeed between Pétain and the whole nation, but especially the ones who fought with him, was forged a bond that the living feel to this day. And so I think this quote illustrates both what you were saying is that the whole nation is exposed, but the men who served for him were treated to a larger extent or more intensively because they were there, they saw him, you know, close to the way that was taking them back and to the front. So in this uh, initial regression that we discuss, um, correct me if, if I'm paraphrasing wrongly, you find that the number of collaborators per capita is 7% higher for those municipalities that had regiments that served in Verdun under Petain. We um, are not in this regression distinguishing whether these specific collaborators yes. were, I mean, themselves ex-soldiers or not. Presumably these ex-soldiers were already pretty old by then. They will not have joined, I don't know, like a Nazi youth organizations because they may have yes. been in their mid-40s, right? But importantly, the veterans of World War One. first of all, it's a whole cohort of men, right? 8.3 million men served for France in World War One. It's a general mobilization. This is not like the UK. You know, every man between the age of 20 and 48 has to serve. It's universal conscription. So it's a lot of people. And these people join a veteran association who, when Pétain comes into power, the first thing that he does is that he centralizes all the veteran association into the Legion, what is called the Legion, and these organizations, or at least part of this organization, and as we show in the paper, this organization is specifically in this Verdun under Pétain municipalities, become collaborationist organization that then organize these paramilitary troops. So I, I will, what I'm saying here is that these veterans are collaborators. And in particular, they are in organizations that are classified as collaborators, they are organizing paramilitary troops. And we know we even have, you know, one example is Joseph Darnon, who is a veteran of World War I and who becomes the head of the milice and then finally volunteers again to serve on this legion of French volunteers in the Eastern Front. And he himself is a volunteer, he's a, a veteran of World War I. He's a very young one, but he's a veteran of World War I, serves again in World War II, then becomes the head of the milice and goes and serve, you know, for the Wehrmacht at the end of the war. You call the, the process that you were referring to earlier, whereby uh, these uh, local heroes who go back to their municipalities, having served in Verdun under Petén, create these associations, manage to convince their sons or daughters and, you know, nephews or nieces, you know, to join this sort of, uh, I mean, to, to become collaborators and so on. You call this uh, the diffusion of values. And one thing that that uh, I find a little bit surprising is that one may, you know, very well believe, and you, you are uh, very articulate in making that argument, that this diffusion of values is, is, is a very possible mechanism in this setting. Uh, but even if that is the case, uh, there is some regression in which uh, you find that the coefficients for males who due to their age, are very likely to have served in Verdun under Petén are much larger than for other cohorts that, that come afterwards. Wouldn't we expect that the coefficients are stronger for the actual generation that is directly treated relative to the generations that come afterwards and that are, you know, getting some of the values, uh, but from an indirect and more second-hand way? So the diffusion of values, first of all, I want to say that we, we mean two things. One, we mean political values, and I want to talk some more about this. Um, and the other one is the diffusion to others around them. And so if you want um, if you want a personal anecdote that illustrates this diffusion of values, is that uh, my two 
great uncles were in the resistance and um they the story is that they so they were the brothers of my grandmothers um and even their mother was in the resistance and their father had served at Verdun under Pétain and had died shortly after the first world war because he was already old in the First World War, he was in the reserves of the Territorial Infantry. He was already an old man. But he came back from the war just hailing Pétain and just saying that, you know, Pétain was the best man ever alive and that they, he owed his life to him. And so by extension, they owed his life to him. And the story is that they always said is that they always said that if their father had been alive, they would not have joined the resistance. And and perhaps, you know, exposed for longer to their father, who would tell them that, you know, Pétain was the best man alive, they would have become fervent collaborators. And, and these guys were already born, you know, when their dad came back from the First World War. You already you also have the younger generations who are told all their lives, you owe your life to the to you know, the marshal, as they would call him. Um, and so I expect that, you know, I, I think, and, and all these things are measured with a bit of error because we also have information on age for like a small portion of the data set. It's about 25% of the data set. So, uh, but I want to say that I think, you know, there are reasons to believe that if you owe your life to Marshal Pétain because he saved your dad, I think the effect would be quite strong. What we mean by diffusion of values as well is is the you know the, the political values right so uh, we also measure in the paper how political values and votes change to reflect Pétain's own personal opinions and you know and you said daughters and nieces but um, I want to say that France only had male suffrage in the interwar right so female suffrage was in 1945 so when we talk about voting it's again men. Uh, we have some women in the collaborators, only about 15% in our data set. Uh, so what we see in the paper is that we see very clearly that in the interwar, so after World War One, we see a realignment of political values and vote in the Verdun and the Pétain municipalities that correspond to Pétain's own political values. And we analyze in the paper two things. The We analyze what happens in the in between the two rounds of the 1936 elections, because this is very important, because Pétain comes out very uh, strongly in between the two rounds of the 1936 election, and that's very unusual to him. He gives an interview in the main newspaper, he's in the front page, with pretty much voting instructions. He says, this is terrible, the left has done so well in the first round of the 1936 election, France is lost, Look at Germany and Italy. They know what is good. They have these big, strong leaders, and this is where France has to go. And we observe that in these municipalities, in the interval of two weeks when this speech is given, is you know, this interview is given, we see a big swing to the right in the Verdun and the Pétain municipalities. What we also can do with voting data is that we have in the 1936 election some extreme right-wing organizations that are going to be banned in 1937 only to resurface as collaborationist organization in our data sets. And we talk in the paper about this particular organization called La Cagoule, which means the hood. And they were called the hood after the Ku Klux Klan because this is the kind of values that they were advocating for. Um, and so we see a direct link between voting behavior in 1936 and membership of this organization once they resurface under Pétain's government in Vichy. I want to now move to the wider point of the of, of the paper. Obviously, this uh, this historical episode, you know, is 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 very important specifically for France, of course, but you know, extending extending beyond beyond this uh, you know this this specific episode i want to make the case and and see your reaction to this that that uh, what we uh, interpret from this is uh, both maybe narrower and at the same time wider than than uh, that perhaps you know what what like maybe a mechanical reading of the paper uh, might suggest so so you say at, at some point in the at several points, in fact, in the paper that you know exposure to heroes and to heroic networks 
can make people adopt uh, previously repugnant uh, policies. Uh, I, I think I think this is true. I, I think that you know you you have been uh, very persuasive in your argument, but but the the whole the whole notion of influence is that uh, it makes people adopt positions or policies or beliefs that they will not have otherwise adopted in mm-hmm. you know in in whatever direction so you know if if there are certain people who are influential maybe because they are heroes maybe because they are charismatic uh, maybe because of particular historical circumstances that means that they are going to be able to command a following in whatever direction they choose to go it is not surprising that some of these directions are in ways that uh, you know are towards towards things that you know we might in other settings find repugnant right uh, mm-hmm. equally maybe these directions are you know more benevolent than society will have reached by themselves right so the point of the paper is not necessarily just narrow that that they make people adopt previously repugnant policies but they make people adopt policies that they would not have otherwise adopted absolutely so yeah we don't we don't i don't think that our mechanism and what we study is directional it's just happened to be that pétain had these views that were extreme right and anti-democratic and pétain chose the politics of collaboration with germany and people just followed him into this what's if he had gone the other way we would observe the other way. What's interesting, though, is, as you say, is the extent, like the the radicality of these choices, right? For, you know, when we talk about this legion of French volunteers against Bolshevism who went to fight for the Wehrmacht on the Eastern Front in 1943 and 1944, really, you know, if you look at this, it's we're talking about the mechanism through Verdun veterans. So people, you know, the symbol of French fortitude and resistance against Germany who end up volunteering for the Wehrmacht in 1945. And so this is what's interesting to us. Is like, I don't think it's directional, but it shows the radicality of certain choices that people made because of their attachment to a leader, but also because of their own identity. And this is where the second layers of heroism comes. It, it's, it's their own identity was so vested into their, you know, their choice of a leader that led them to some extreme choices. Uh, I want to make now the case that this historical episode was uh, relatively extreme. So some, many years ago, I read a book called Iron Curtain by a journalist called Anne Applebaum that discussed what is it about uh, societies uh, in Eastern Europe? I think she was focusing on Poland, Hungary, and and East Germany that made them relatively willing or more willing than one might have expected to collaborate uh, with the uh, communist Soviet uh, Soviet Union that essentially took over the countries and was able to to rule it m- mostly with very little. Um, resistance from inside those countries uh, for for so many years, and her main argument throughout is that that a, a very important factor uh, in the success uh, of these uh, Soviet occupiers was that these societies have been uh, incredibly traumatized by um, many years of a of a of deportations, of wars, of bombings. Uh, and so on. Here, I think that the specific circumstances of France in 1940 might also have been a necessary condition for such a strong uh, effect to appear. So France was also a traumatized society. You say the war was lost in eight weeks, devoid of the self-confidence that France typically has or other democracies have. This seems like an important precondition to have, like an army that has collapsed, a government in disarray. You know, it's a context in which everything that we thought that we knew suddenly might not be true anymore. I want, you know, I want to give you another another, um, extreme situation. I consider myself a a very peaceful person who will never harm anybody else. 
I don't know what I will do in the context of a zombie apocalypse, right? It could be that I end up eating the children of my neighbors. Who knows, right? Uh, because everything below me has collapsed. So it seems that the, the ability to extrapolate to such an extreme as uh, you were describing um, behavior might be limited by these circumstances. So I want to make two points. The first one is that I do agree that we're looking at a particular setting and France is traumatized by the defeat, by the rapid defeat to Germany and panicked or whatever you want. But again, it's the whole of France who is in that state. And we are only comparing some municipalities to others, right? And so I conditional on the trauma is perhaps what we find, but we're only like the whole of France is traumatized and still we find those differences. The, the people in this non-Verdun Pétain municipalities made different choices. They were not forced by the forces of trauma independent of what was going on to make the choices that they, that they made. And second of all, you know, France is traumatized by the defeat, etc. But it, it is the, the right time that the right had been waiting for, to some extent, to put in place the policies that they wanted to put in place for a while. So I think the you refer to the trauma of the defeat, but what I want to bring your attention to is more the decades prior to this, which are decades of polarization between the left and the right. And this latent civil conflict that started in France way before the fight between the resistance and the collaboration. And actually that historians make start in 1934 when uh, there is right-wing leagues that try and storm parliament to prevent the investiture of a left-wing government. So I think this is more the, the, the time that led to some of the divisions. And I think the to some extent, the trauma of the defeat was an opportunity for certain to put in place these policies. So, I mean, so I, I will think, uh, I will say two things, uh, three things, in fact, uh, uh, reacting to what you have said. The first one is that I, I was, of course, not doubting your identification strategy, but you say, mm -hmm. uh, arguing that, that- I didn't the, take it as that. Yeah, yeah that this is like a, a condition for the effect uh, that mm -hmm. you are describing. Uh, the, the other thing uh, that I will say is that of course, what I said uh, uh, to, to reinforce your, your point does not apply to your voting regressions um, mm -hmm. because your voting regressions are prior to prior to the defeat. Um, mm -hmm. And the okay. magnitudes are comparable, right? Right. The, the qualitative aspect of voting for an extreme right-wing organization versus working for the Gestapo is very different. But in terms of magnitude, this is the same. And we are able to draw a similar magnitude from the voting data to the joining of this Kagul organization that we emerged, you know, through different forms under the Vichy occupation. The third thing that I wanted to say is to reinforce uh, the point that you said that I think is an, a very important one, which is that that moments of crisis are also important, right? The, mm -mm. It, it, is, it is true that that the studying moment the periods of normalcy you know is a chronologically when most of people live but the moments of crisis also can have like a very big effects on the direction of societies uh, you're you're very right about that okay thank you pauline for coming to the podcast thank you so much for having me Jordan. it was great talking to you Please visit our website, thevisiblehand.uk, uh, for other uh, past or future episodes that you might be interested in. Interactory music and logo by Aitana Blanesiso, episode produced by Anderson Tan.